Hello and welcome to the Golf Science Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Thompson, your golf science educator. Now in this podcast, we explore the latest research in golf science, talking to sports science researchers from around the world in the areas of nutrition, psychology, biomechanics, strength and conditioning, as well as other sports science disciplines. We take a deep dive into their research, looking at what they did, as well as looking at how the findings are useful for playing professionals, coaching professionals and amateur golfers. Now before we get stuck in today, I need to introduce my co-host, Lewis Downey, PGA Pro. How you doing, mate? Good to see you today. I'm good, thank you, mate. Um, yeah, good to be here again. And obviously every week's different, so um, learning new stuff every week, so it's awesome. <laughs> well, how did the speed sticks discussion go last week for you? Have you still got a speed stick now, or have you managed to uh, I've put still that got on them. eBay? <laughs> no. no, 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 I've still got them. I still feel I still feel they have relevance in my in my coaching bag, so... Mm-hmm. They're still there. Um, I have used them over the last week, actually. It kind of prompted me a little bit. So, um, so yeah, no, I feel like they've still got a role. Yeah, well, we, we did discuss that, didn't we, around kind of how they can be useful potentially to get people to do a warm-up and actually start to engage with warming up before golf and also the training kind of program aspect of mm. it too. So there's definitely value, uh, well, potentially value, um, but potentially not from a warm-up perspective. No, I mean, like, I think from an initial warm up to just get you moving fine like if that's kind of like using something that doesn't have that base orientation like we talked about Mm -hmm. but um in regards to like actually just getting the the physical elements of your body to move better then getting that sort of kinematic sequence to start working well then i I see it as a benefit yeah i agree i agree and today obviously we're talking about golf nutrition um so from your perspective what do you actually do when you play in a comp? What do you actually eat before you play? What do you bring in your bag? Um, I, I I have good intentions, but probably don't do the right things. I'm certainly not pounding down chocolate bars. I know that. Um, I do try and stay hydrated before the round. Could probably be better. Um, I am aware when my sort of mental capacity just starts to die off. Um, it's normally when I've made a double bogey, something like that. <laughs> Um, in regards to what I'm aware, I'm, I'm fairly sure like, you know, stuff with sustained, you know, slow release energy. I've always had that sort of pounded down me, low GI foods, glycemic index. Is that right? Um, stuff like that. No knowledge <laughs> sure for me. These I'm, other I'm, guys will tell us in a minute, but I, I know yeah. that we don't want like sugar rushes. We want to have a, a nice, good, solid level blood sugar throughout the round. So, uh, mine yeah. probably isn't like that. But in here, I've got the right knowledge. It's just obviously putting it into uh, practice. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Well, I, when I used to compete, I used to, uh, my, my weird and novel way of feeding myself before the round is I used to make some porridge in the morning. I used to put it in a sandwich bag and then I used to chop the bottom off. So effectively, it's like an icing thing. <laughs> and I used to bring that with me on the course to like before I was walking around and kind of eating it as I was going. So that was my kind of strategy, interesting way. Um, Love it. A little piping yeah. bag. Yeah. Right. Well, brilliant. Let's also introduce our second guest today uh, to help us explore this research area. Um, So today um, uh, we've got with us uh, Zach Williams. Um, He is the co-founder of Dryforce. Um, So come on, welcome onto the show, Zach. How are you? Hey, Dan. Very good. It's you know early four a.m. here in Boston, Mass. But I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you are welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Um, Just want to firstly kind of introduce you um 
because I'm aware that our uh, listeners may be wondering what Drive Force is. So can you just give us a brief synopsis of kind of Drive Force? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I think Drive Force as a company is trying to be a better brand of uh, sports nutrition in that um, I'm the lead formulator and my goal is to make products which are both exceptionally good for the performance that it's geared towards, but also exceptionally healthy. And I think the example I'll give is the pre-workouts. Uh, they might be really good for someone for a two-hour gym session, but they're not necessarily something you would recommend that a person consume on a regular basis for a variety of reasons. And then, you know, our our current niche target is helping golfers. Um, I'll actually relate it to something Luis just described. So... I'm actually not the golfer in the group. My younger brother is, and it was at his suggestion that we look at golf. And when I took a few interviews uh, with golfers to understand better the physical requirements, I noted a very common uh, series of symptoms that I associated with dehydration and fatigue that were especially happening in the later rounds. And then when I would ask people, what are your nutritional protocols, Forget when you're playing with your friends and betting, you know, like when you're actually going to go for your amateur card or, you know, out there to play like an actual tour around, the responses were largely, I don't know, I want to do it, but I don't, um, or I forget while I'm playing. <laughs> and um, that coupled with the discovery that as an athlete with very unique requirements, golfers were by and large being underserved by, you know, what I interpreted as established methods in sports nutrition that could be used to de to deliver, um, to deliver a circumstance where they wouldn't have to experience these very common issues of fatigue and dehydration. Mm. Yeah. I put together a product which I believe would solve for that, and we validated it with pros, and so far that's what we're riding on, is a DFA team. Brilliant. Great stuff. So, obviously today we're going to be talking um, all around golf nutrition, um, and to do that we need to introduce our main guest here today, um, Professor Graham Close from Liverpool John Moores University. So welcome to the podcast, Graham. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for being on today. Just to give the listeners a little bit about your background, Graham is a former professional rugby league player and is uh, now Professor of Human Physiology at Liverpool John Moores University. Graham is a fellow of both the British Association of Sports and Exercise Sciences and the European College of Sports Sciences. He is the head of nutrition for England Rugby, the DP World Tour, and the Ryder Cup team. His research is focused on basic and applied sports nutrition, where he's published over 150 papers, uh, book chapters, and review articles. Is there anything else in that list there, Graham, that I've missed for you? I think that's more or less covered it quite nicely, yeah, thank you. Oh, good man, good stuff. Are you a golfer yourself as well? Depends what you classify as a golfer. Um... <laughs> I, I, I certainly carry a bag of sticks around a golf course on a regular basis and do my very best to get it into the hole in as few shots as possible. But uh, I don't know that goes far as classifying myself as a golfer. <laughs> no, fair enough. I think quite a few of us will fall in that same camp as well. Yeah. Um, 
So today, obviously, we're going to chat to you about your recent chapter that you co-authored in the Handbook of Golf Science, which is obviously focused around the nutrition for golf. Now, just as um, Zach alluded to there, really, personally, from my kind of opinion and view, I think nutrition has often kind of been neglected by golfers um, and also very little attention in the golfing industry with its link to performance. Mm. So I was hoping kind of today, well, firstly, do you agree with that? And secondly, um, I was hoping to kind of today get a bit of a 101 or nutrition 101, if that's possible. Yeah, first of all, yes, I do agree with it. And as an academic researcher, I also think it's been neglected from a research perspective. So, so I've written book chapters in science and football, science and rugby, lots of different sports where I've written a book chapter. And the one in the handbook of golf was the hardest book chapter I've ever had to write. And that's basically because when you, when you start to write a book chapter, you normally would review literature and then come to a conclusion. But there's virtually no literature out there. And the literature that is, it's pretty basic, really. It looks like it's student projects that just needed a quick dissertation uh, rather than, you know, well-studied randomized control trials. So what we've had to do is borrow literature from other sports and then try and okay. translate it. Um, and that's quite hard to do because in many ways it is quite a unique sport with the walking and the intermittent uh, little boats of activity. So, yeah, difficult. And then from the applied side of things, I think what we're seeing now is, is a massive change. So, you know, I got into golf nutrition maybe seven or eight years ago. It's actually probably getting close to a decade now. Uh, and at the time, it was quite unusual for golfers to want nutrition support. Um, yesterday, I spent four hours on Zoom calls to DP World Tour players uh, and some of the best players on tour who are now all really embracing this and realizing that um, it can make a huge difference. And we might touch on this as we work our way through. And the where I think it makes a huge difference to the professional golfer isn't necessarily where people think, which is obviously fueling the round. I think that's really important. But where I think it makes a big difference to a professional golfer is keeping them well for 12 months of the year, keeping them energised on day four of a round, um, helping them with travel strategies, and, and just making sure that the, the, the food that they're eating is conducive to long-term health as opposed to convenience food in a clubhouse mm -hmm. and snack food bought in a pro shop that you throw in your bag. And I don't think it takes a professor to realize that convenience food bought in a pro shop combined with food, burgers and chips bought in a clubhouse, doing that multiple times a day, isn't going to be conducive not only to your performance, but to your long-term health. Yeah, and, and I, get, I get your point exactly there, especially with those professional players who are playing over a four-day tournament that the almost the compounded fatigue element and the kind of the, the amount they're pushing their body over those four days i guess that's when the nutrition really mm. comes into its own if that makes sense so you're telling me they don't have a pint of guinness at 10 a.m and then have a fry up and go to your <laughs> do you know what you know i can see in your picture behind you you know the 150th open and uh if I, it would have been great for you to have seen you know i think that was one of the better setups that we've managed I was fortunate enough that I worked with the Open. So I put the menus together and 
they, they abide by my suggestions. And arriving a pint of Guinness in the morning, we've got a smoothie bar now. So there's a fresh smoothie station. We've got chefs doing fresh omelettes and different styles of eggs that are being made freshly to order. They make our homemade snacks to take onto the course. We've got a juice bar. So, you know, if, if the lads are feeling a bit run down, we can have like um, uh, juices that are, you know, energizing, immune supporting, etc. So I, I think it's probably the sport that's come the furthest in the last five to 10 years and unrecognizable, I would say, to what what most people might think is pre-golf nutrition. The, the, that sort of setup that at a tournament, would I, would I be right in saying that at a football club or a rugby club, is it similar at their training grounds? Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. to be fair, you know, as uh, Pablo Picasso said, wasn't it, that a good artist copy and great artist steal, you know, a, a lot of the nutrition guidance that I've put together for the European or the DP Tour and Ryder Cup, etc., are basically adaptations of what I've put together for the likes of England Rugby or Everton Football Club when I, when I was working there. The principles stay the same. It's just often the volumes that change, uh, and and some of the subtleties of it. But yeah, the if you was to walk into um, the players' lounge at the BMW at Wentworth, for example, it's exactly the type of things that you would expect if you walked into a Premier League football ground. Got it. Yeah, success leaves clues, right? So you're just like you say, changing the volumes to suit the the actual energy output and the mental, you know fatigue that they're going to face yeah exactly now obviously there's there's other challenges quite unique to golf as well that we need to we need to try and deal with but ultimately yeah we we've we've got maybe 10 or 15 years now of real good experience working in elite sport and knowing what works what doesn't work even in how it's presented makes a big difference or the layout of it and also when you go into these buffet style players lounges even the way that you're setting it up were, you know, how you're putting nudges to nudge them to make the right decision. I'm not the type of nutritionist who wants to ban anything, but I just want to nudge you towards, you know, the right decision most of the time. Uh, and just a little subtle, what do you see first, you know, will make a big difference. Where do we put the snacks? Where do we put the hydration stations? How are we going to try and encourage them to to uh, to make the right calls? All these little things can can play a big part in what we do, and and on the golf course as well. Weirdly, I'd, I'd say golf is probably one of the one of the only sports where you actually have the most opportunity to hydrate yourself and eat <laughs> compared yeah. to other sports. Yeah, correct. And, and uh, you know, it's got its own challenges. You know, such as keeping water cool, for example, um, because obviously we're very fortunate that our sport follows the sun, so we're. we're not like looking out of my window today where all I can see is snow. Um, you know, we, we follow the, the sun, don't we? So keeping keeping things like the hydration cool and keeping snacks cool and, you know, that, then the challenge is making sure that the players have access to take good snacks onto the course. Uh, and as I say, doing that at the British Open, or the Open, sorry, I'll get in trouble for going to the British Open. Doing that at yeah, the, don't do that. Yeah, yeah don't sorry, I'll get, I'll get <laughs> Doing that at the Open Championship, uh, it's quite when when budgets are really solid and chefs are able to make the foods we want and you'll go into a player's uh, locker area and there'll be a fridge with grab and go items like banana breads, muesli bars, wraps, so they can pick them up and take them onto a course. 
you know, I guess my challenge is to make sure that there's options also available on other tours like the Challenge Tour. So actually the players are still able to because, you know, it's all well and good doing it in ideal situations. But how do you help the emerging golfer and the next generation of golfers? And that's something that my team who work on the for the European Tour and the DP Tours, etc., are really keen on trying to do simplify these messages to make it available for everybody. Yeah, there's another there's an emerging tour called the Clutch Tour as well, um, which is coming out there as well. The Clutch Tour that's probably worth you guys speaking to. Maybe I, I'd imagine there's a lot of players that play on that. Not speaking for all of them, that probably don't eat right, hydrate right, hmm. or train right in the gym. Um, I mean, I'm not saying all of them, but I'd imagine a lot of them have just got a, a basic, you know, basic nutrition and, and not really doing it the, the proper way. Yeah, correct. And I think what's massively important is for the emerging golfer to realise the importance that the, the elite golfers put on it. So, like I say, yesterday I spent hours on Zoom calls and, you know, we're looking at at least two, if not three of them players who will be in, in the Ryder Cup team. So, you know, the people at the very top of, of the game have really began to embrace this. And, you know, and I think one of the best things that happened to nutrition was when, when Tiger Woods came along, you know, and suddenly treated the game like an athlete to men. Obviously, the likes of Rory, you know, um, has picked up on this uh, and taken it to uh, probably even a, a new level of, of professionalism. And when the emerging golfers see how seriously these lot are taking it and the fact that they have got structured eating plans and you see the food choices we're making in the clubhouse, because we do have non-athlete foods available in the players' lounges because the unfortunate situation, not unfortunate, that's a bad way to put it, the reality is that in the players' lounge, we're not just feeding the players, we're feeding the families and the children. So it can't all be quinoa and sweet potato and um, sea bass. But what you see is the, the very top players generally go for the quinoa and the sea bass and the sweet potato. And, and then that spreads because... You, you do see younger players seeing what the, the other people have got on the plate and it slowly does begin to nudge people towards them better choices. Yeah, I think part of that's... No, go on, Luis. There you go, mate, no, you go. All, all, no, it was just a joke. I thought you were going to say, just in case they miss the cut, they can go back to normal food. Having <laughs> <laughs> some food in there for that situation. Um it's probably not a bad shout either. I, I've made a couple of mistakes in, in my nutrition career where um, one of them was with England rugby and the I can talk about it because two of the players mention it in their autobiographies. Um, it was a tradition that the day before a game with England rugby, they had these big chocolate biscuits that are made by the hotel uh, and the nutritionist, or one nutritionist who you might be looking at or you might not, thought it was a good idea to get rid of them biscuits because health-wise are probably not the best. Um, that was... Are you talking the little biscuits that just sat on their pillow? Oh, no, no. These are big, chunky, like, right, okay. massive things made by the hotel that taste like little drops of heaven or big chunks of heaven. Um, so, yeah, that wasn't my wisest decision. Uh, and then from a golf perspective, there's often like afternoon tea, so cakes and tea in the clubhouse. Um well, for the end of play, and yeah, that's probably not my wisest decision to have tried to um, remove that either. So, look, it, it, it's it's about 
making sure that the options are, are needed for optimizing performance of the, but also remembering that, you know, life's about living and having a bit of fun as well, isn't it? And, you know, we, we can put them enjoyable foods into a, into a diet at the right time as well. And, you know, I've perhaps made the mistake in the past of going too far of, of trying to make everything performance related and, you know, remembering that, you know, food is mood and actually you can pick up mood by, by some treats. Everything in moderation, including moderation, right? Absolutely correct. Zach. Yeah. Spot on. So what we've kind of, you've kind of identified there is that kind of, they, they've got this, getting this awareness over the last few years in the top of the game. And, and hopefully that's beginning to kind of trickle down to the lower levels. And I guess part of that is, is knowledge and awareness, isn't it really about that nutrition can impact your golfing performance and actually knowledge as well around what is good to eat. Um, and I think that's, that's often, I guess, can be a barrier from kind of the lay golfer perspective um, on the ground of thinking, well, I, I don't have a smoothie bar like they've got at the open or I haven't got a nice, like lovely oat related snack that I can kind of throw in my bag kind of thing. I guess it's the awareness of what's good to eat, but then also that a little bit of time potentially for preparing can kind of go a long way to helping with that. Yeah, I had a, a golfer yesterday, who, a real deep thinker, and there's a great question he said to me at the end of it, right, if you were to give me like three key words that you think would help with my uh, nutrition, what would it be? And I was like, what a great question. That is, it's almost like a podcast interview. Uh, <laughs> and one of them I did say was understanding. Uh, and the reason that I put that in is that I can give somebody, and we'll probably come to this today, an on-course strategy. So what to eat on the course at what hole, bang, bang, and bang. Yeah. Now I can tell you what to eat. So let's say we go a muesli bar or a banana at hole four, a chicken wrap at the turn and we go a muesli bar or a banana at 14. Well, then what happens if we get to a course and we can't get a muesli bar or a banana? What do they then eat? They don't know because I've given them the what, but not the why. If mm. I then explain to them what I'm trying to do is get carbohydrates into you, 4, 10, and 14, and mid-round, I want some protein in there as well. So these are foods that are great carbohydrate-based foods on the course, and this is a good protein option. Well, then actually, if a chicken wrap's not available, they can make us an alternate. Or if a banana's not available, they might make a better alternate. So, it's correct, that understanding basically the why as well as the what is really important. And then the other key word I give him was, like, consistency. So, actually, a golfer's got enough decisions to make on a golf course. I wouldn't like to think how many decisions you've got to make on a golf course probably more than any other sport, I would think. Hmm. The last thing you want to be thinking about is when do I eat and why. And So let's just get a routine going, right? This is what you do. So you, it becomes a no-brainer that your putter goes in your bag at hole four and your banana comes out. You're not even thinking about it. It's just a habit. At the turn, your sandwich comes out. At 14, hmm. your next bit of carbohydrate comes out. Right, not even a decision anymore. You know, same hmm. with the hydration. You know, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but I try and get them into the habit of, when the putter goes in the bag, the water bottle comes out. You know, mm. you're not then, how many of us have got to the end of a round and looked in our golf bag and the water bottle we bought in the club shop is still in the golf bag and we've not even lifted it out? <laughs> well, I looked at my golf bag a little while ago and I had maybe food that I had in there from about a week ago, which wasn't good. Correct. So we're getting habits <laughs> and consistency. So I like that mentality that when the putter goes in the bag, 
the water bottle comes out and you carry it to the next tea. So even if you don't drink it, you've, you get into that habit. If it's in your hand, the chances are you're going to take a little sip and yeah. you're not then forgetting about it. And it's just part of the habit. You know, we just build these habits and, and I talk to the golfers as well. I give them checklists. So when you're doing your bag and your, your caddy's checking, the, have you got everything you need? Put on that checklist, your four, 10, 14 foods. Maybe put a little, uh, get your caddy to put a little dot on hole four, ten, and 14 so he knows to hand you. And if you're not going to caddy, like people like myself, um, just put a, make that little mark of a card yourself. So you've got your little F on 4, 10, and 14. You're reminding yourself to actually have that food. And then we're not in that mad situation where you spot it when you're putting your glove away on 18 and you, you notice you've got some food in your bag that you've not eaten. Yeah, no, I think that, that's a great piece of advice. And from that first point you said there around the knowledge then, so actually them understanding not just, oh, I need to eat a banana here, I need to eat this here, understanding what they're having when, so the carbohydrates, yeah. the protein, those kind of things. Let's delve a little bit into that then, just to give the listeners a bit of an awareness of, well, why why do we need carbohydrates? What, what are they, what's the purpose of them within sport and kind of within a golfing context? Yeah, and this is where I said that the, the book chapter I wrote was difficult because most sports you would talk off as saying that carbohydrate is a main fuel for virtually all sports, particularly with a high intensity nature to it. Um, and then obviously you, you can make an argument that golf isn't that um, high intensity and that. And the research, there isn't really that strong research around it, but there is some suggesting that towards the end of a round, blood sugar can be dropped by as much as 30% if we've not eaten during the round. And we know that that can increase perceptions of fatigue, decision-making, uh, focus. So I, I would say that's probably the main reason that we're looking to, to maintain some some nutrition from a carbohydrate perspective, to maintain steady blood glucose concentration, maintain our own concentration and delay these these feelings of fatigue that we often get um, during a round. And, you know, I, I think of myself about decision-making towards the end of a round. How, how often have we, like, done something that's just completely crazy, a really poor decision, and, and can we tie that to... Um, to, to our nutrition. So even though the, the research isn't solid, I've certainly seen in applied practice, that if we get a consistent carbohydrate feed of, you know, as you said at the beginning, slow releasing, low glycemic index carbohydrates, we do, uh, we do seem to maintain a performance. What we also need to think about from the elite end as well is long-term health. And, you mm. know, and we know about a, a relationship between carbohydrates and protein uh, and the immune system. So our ability to fight off infections and things like that. So, yeah, and then the final thing I would say is that, you know, you're on a golf course these days for the best part of five hours, unfortunately. Um, the pros, because we take the time, and us hackers, because someone's hacking about in, a, in the woods in front of you and won't let us play through. So you're on there for a long time. You don't want to spend five hours of your day eating sweets and chocolate bars. You know, because it's a long time of the day. And if we're doing that consistently, that's not conducive to, to long-term health. So good quality choices not only can help our immediate performance, but our long-term health as well. Yes. So that kind of makes me reflect on the things that we see in pro shops. 
Yes. So things like chocolate, yes. like flapjacks, like sports drinks. Thoughts on those as kind of options? Yeah, I think most of the times things like that aren't the best idea. You know, the problem is that most people would prefer to eat a chocolate bar than a banana or a homemade uh, type of bar. Or, and, and then the... Um, they probably don't think about taking a sandwich or taking a wrap or some food out that's got a bit more quality to it for halfway around. Um, in terms of the traditional sports drinks, you know, again, I'm not convinced that's a way forward. Um, you know, I, I think on a hot day, it's probably important that we replace some electrolytes. Um, you know, we, we can sweat quite a lot, but that doesn't need to be uh, highly caffeinated, highly sugared um, drinks either. So I think we can do things a lot better um, than, than what is conveniently available in shops. And I hope I'm not doing any golf shops out of any, um, any business here. But I am beginning to see you know, better options available. No, I mean, Graham, like the, what you said about the sports drink uh, solutions not being adequate or improper even. I mean, there's a couple of bits of research on manual labor in the hot sun that can see a person losing up to 600 milligrams of sodium per hour. Now, a golfer is not performing manual labor, but, you know, across three to six hours, I can imagine, you know, they could be getting somewhere close to an average of 600 milligrams of sodium per, you know, every two, three hours. And if you're looking at what the what's the most common solution, like a Gatorade or a Powerade, um, each serving of those has, you know, anywhere from 200 to 250 milligrams of sodium. And if we know that maintaining sodium levels is absolutely imperative to maintaining blood volume, which is imperative for transference of nutrients and oxygen throughout your circulatory system, um, you're operating at an increasing deficit unless you're pounding multiple um, sports drinks, you know, every, you know, two every two hours across an 18 round you know game so even in that regard you know those solutions are subpar yeah so we have um a very much a food first philosophy on the tour so where we can get our nutrition in food we do um and that's correct but one of the prey exceptions we do make to that is there are certain tournaments uh, and i'm thinking particularly towards the, the dubai end when we're out there where we will provide electrolyte tablets so you know the the, the high sodium high magnesium um, tablets that they can add into the water so we're not taking lots of sugared caffeinated drinks that yeah. are commercially available and as you know most commercially available sports drinks aren't high, high enough in the sodium partly because yeah. it's not aimed at a, and it sounds ridiculous but a lot of these drinks aren't aimed at a sports market they're aimed at a general consumer and if you made them taste salty enough the general consumer probably wouldn't the drink them so we do tend to use a little tubes of electrolytes and things like that um particularly in, in in hot weather to maintain hydration but on top of that zach we'll also make sure that they um the, we get the sodium right before and after the round too so I'm, I'm a big fan of like salty soups you know on a hot day you know so it's an easy way to get lots of liquid and salt in you know People generally don't mind drinking quite a salty soup, but if you give them that in just a normal drink, they will be like, oh, that's far too salty. So, um, you know, I think we often under-emphasize what we can do electrolyte-wise in food. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's also, you know, just in the realm of the sports 
nutrition, other ingredients that can improve, like, you know, both the retention and efficiency of hydration in your body. So, you know, one of my favorite ingredients that I put into DF-18 was um, a patented form of glycerol, which I'm sure you're familiar, but, you know, it can raise blood serum, osmolality, and um, basically improve total body water retention and maintaining of blood volume. And then taurine is another favorite of mine, um, in particular because of its ability to act as an osmoeffector. And in that regard, it helps the movement of water in and out of your cells, i.e. supporting the, um, you know, sodium-potassium pump. And so in conjunction with both fluids and a good electrolyte regimen, you can extend the life cycle of fluids in your body while they're being used more efficiently for the purposes of hydration. But Graham, from your, like you said, when, when you're talking about kind of replacing or doing the golf pro out of business, I'm not, I think almost this education piece can almost be a, if, if it means they then have to stop getting as many chocolate bars in, but they have to try and get in potentially some, like you say, some chicken wraps in, in their fridge, or if they try and get some, if it's like a really hot day, they, they sell some of those electrolyte tablets or something similar in the shop. Those kind of things potentially is where they can just shift, I guess, potentially their thing, if that makes sense. It, it is, and it'll be a slow burner because, Luke, I think sometimes it's just an excuse to eat a chocolate bar, isn't it? Like most people enjoy a chocolate bar, and, it, and it's a good excuse. And, um, and, and I think part of the danger is there's been a lot of poor information in the literature about the energy expenditure of a round of golf, um, and it's nowhere near as high as what people think. So there is some reports of like two and a half to three thousand calories for a round of golf. You know, that's that's more than running a marathon. And we've all played a game of golf, but none of us have come off thinking we've run a marathon. Yeah. So I got one of the top players to wear an activity monitor for me in uh, in, the, in this year's Open, and he was coming out at around about somewhere between five and eight hundred calories per round, um, which is about what I've seen using better equipment on the lesser standard golfer, but that was at the 150th Open. So that's what I think, around about five or 800 cals. So it's no wonder that, you know, some people have two or three chocolate bars and then go and have a burger and chips at the end and a couple of pints, and they wonder why they're not getting the health benefits that they thought they might get from playing golf. Well, you've just, certainly from a an energy balance perspective, you've just completely negated it. So what we're better doing is making much better choices. Uh, and that's why I don't think there's a massive need for traditional like sugary drinks, Cokes and things like that. Um, mm. You know, one, we don't need that um, rapid sugar release. And two, for anyone who's using the game of golf to try and help with long-term weight maintenance, then actually an understanding that whilst was massive benefits to playing golf, physical, mental, agility, strength, psychological, and walking. It, it is five to 800 calories. It's not two to 3,000 that's been inappropriately put in the literature. Yeah, Zach and, and Graham, you fill me in a little bit more on this, actually, because I think we spoke before, Zach, didn't we, about WHOOP. And yep. does does WHOOP actually measure like energy and out, oh, output? 
It attempts to, but anything to measure energy expenditure is difficult. Let's just put that out there. Uh, And there is actually, it was actually a whoop that I was referring to, but one of the players wore for me uh, during the 150th and 7th of the data. And I think it's reasonable. There was a big problem at first with whooping golfers when they were wearing on the wrist. And what you were Mm. finding was because of the rapid arm swings, it was massively overestimating. So even the placement of these trackers are important. You'll see a lot more golfers now wear it on the upper arm when they wear it. Yeah. Um, obviously not moving as much. Uh, and with a lot of these trackers, the more information you can put into it, the better information you get out of it. Yep. So, you you know, if you can start putting more details about you and Matt into it. I, I, I think the energy expenditure stuff of Whoop is, there is some research out there showing that it isn't bad at all, really. And some things like resting heart rate, um, where I get a little bit more dubious is when it, things like recovery and scores that things give you and heart rate variability. You know, I think mean, strain and stuff like that as well, right, Graham? Yeah, you know, and where do these numbers come from? Which a lot of it comes from HRV, heart rate variability, and that's a really difficult thing to measure in a controlled laboratory setting. So, mm. whilst I think the technology is coming on lots to measure it. I don't know if I'm, I'm convinced on it yet, but look, that's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I think there is a lot of good we can get from Whoop. You know, before I, you know people get me wrong, I think there are, you know, good numbers that you can get from it, which will certainly help. Hmm. I've used it, and yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to say that when it, when it comes to the trackers, um, the, re- the reason I like Whoop in particular has like little to do with the. I think the technology per se, um, because as you can even see, they sell you the wristband for $30. It's clearly not the main stay of their business, mm. but they've been around for so long um, and their entire business model is structured around uh, the data collection and drawing conclusions and correlations between it and health markers. And so you're buying the analytics. It's imperfect, as Graham uh, was alluding to, but in the world of um, understanding what those measurements mean for our health and wellness, they're you know they're at the forefront of the analysis mm. at the moment, which is why I like them. That's my main point. Mm. Did you say you use it, Lewis? Or I I have done. Um, I, I used it for about a year and a half, and I just I don't know. I stopped using it. I, I, it was nothing wrong with it. Um, I was just tracking. I was doing it for sla- tracking my sleep because my sleep mm. was rubbish. Um, but I just found out, I just found that like, I started sleeping better and I didn't really need it for the other data, like personally. Mm. So I stopped using it because they charge you a monthly fee, which is obviously their business uh, plan, model, which is yeah. also a modern model, which is great for them. But I just, yeah, I didn't find I needed it anymore. But I did while I was using it, I found it useful. Um, I know someone that uses an aura ring, yeah. which is like a similar thing. Mm. And then, which is obviously not that practical for golf, probably. Um, yeah, and then I've used a my zone belt as well, which is only for in workout uh, stuff. So I actually mm. wore a my zone belt on a round of golf, and again, just showing what Graham said about the calories, the my zone belt come out at about just over a thousand calories after playing a round of golf. So maybe maybe I'd hit a few more shots than the tour pros. I'm not sure, but <laughs> only, only a few, Lewis. Only a few, pal. What a lot of them <laughs> fail to consider. And that might be what has gone on there is the energy expenditure that you would spend sat on your backside doing nothing, which is about a calorie a minute. So you do, if you was on the course for 
five hours, you would do about 300 calories if you were sat doing nothing. So the actually the energy expenditure of that row and bend, according to that, might be six yeah. to 700, which is about right. What we're talking about is the expenditure above RMR, um, which mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people have taken into account, Matt. You know, so we have said, right, I'm playing a game of golf. That's a thousand. To, I can add that onto my day. But actually, mm-hmm. no, you need to subtract three or four hundred that would have you've already accounted for in your day anyway, because you're still going to be using that. Mm. Yeah. So to shift gear a little bit then, um, we've spoken quite a bit there about carbohydrate energy expenditure, but the other thing that I have seen an emergence of in kind of pro shops as well, and I don't know what it's like at Redbourne, Lewis, but I'm coming down this week, mate, so um, we might be able to get a game of golf in, um, is the emergence of protein shakes and kind of protein bars in the clubhouse. Yeah. Is, is protein important for something like golf? Well, Luke, protein is important for life. So if it's important for life, it's going to be important for golf. Um, I, I think, you know, what you've got to remember is um, when you think about your muscle mass, you know, if you look at your arm now, this is borrowing a, a phrase from Luke Van Loon, probably the world lead, leaders in in, um, in protein. You know, it, it, it turns over at a reasonable rate. So if you look at your arm now, good luck at it because in 90 days time there's going to be no of them original muscle proteins left within it and it being mm. constantly broken down and so it's going through muscle protein breakdown and new coming in muscle protein synthesis and that is based on the protein foods that we're eating so you literally are what you eat we can label up protein you drink it or eat it three hours later take a muscle biopsy and that's now your muscle so we are constantly doing this from the world of golf, then, so then why do we need protein during a round? Well, it's going to really not do a great deal for your performance in that moment. But we know that the body wants a regular supply of protein throughout the day. So if you've not eaten for an hour before a round, you've been spending five hours on a round, and then you're not going to be home for another hour after that. That's seven hours that the body hasn't seen any protein. And we know that that's not optimal. So... That's probably why at the elite end, I I want my athlete to have like a chicken wrap or something at the turn. So I've given them some protein mid-round for, um, you know, that muscle growth and support. But we also know that um, the immune system needs a a ready supply of amino acids to mount an immuno response. And if we're low in protein, we can't then handle illness as well as what we should do. And there's a... Many, many health-related factors. Now, does that mean you need a protein shake? Well, it depends, and that's a horrible answer. Most athletes I work with, I aim to get them on two grams of protein per kilogram body mass. So if you're an 80-kilo golfer, I want you on 160 grams a day of protein. That's one of the, the issues. The next thing is I want that 160 grams spread evenly throughout the day as probably four 40-gram doses. So some breakfast in the morning, um, lunch, mid-afternoon, and then something later on in the day. If a protein shake means that that's the easiest way for you to hit that target on the, in the day and you don't like taking food onto a golf course or so protein shake mid-round, so be it. But I, I'm not convinced it's going to physically help you in that moment to play better golf, uh, mm. but it will 
potential help in your long-term eating goals, if that makes sense. Protein can make you feel fuller. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, it's one of the high protein foods. Yeah, and that's why um, you know it, you know it can be helpful for those who are trying to uh, control appetite. You know that and vegetables. You know I think are the two big things for appetite regulation. So if you used to eat, I don't know something like a chocolate bar, you're very rarely full. Are you half an hour later? Where if you used to have like some chicken and vegetable wrap then the chances that you are going to be have a feeling of satiety for much longer but yeah good point so what one, one point that i kind of want to make is we've spoken a lot about kind of chicken wraps um as being the way to get your nutrition <laughs> now i'm a vegetarian um, and i know that some people won't or might not have the opportunity to have chicken wraps on a day so what kind of other potential options would be useful to kind of get carbohydrates in and also to get kind of that protein related aspect in yeah you know it's a, it's a good question and you're not the only um vegetarian or are you vegetarian or vegan vegetarian I, I, I couldn't give up cheese that's my problem okay eggs <laughs> eggs yeah i eat eggs yeah so you know obviously we've got some good sources uh um edamame beans are a real good source of protein um and then there's things like the extra firm tofu um and things like that so there's still plenty of ways to do it if i said that the options in a golf shop are limited the plant-based protein options in a golf shop are going to be really limited so for somebody like yourself it'll be much more of a case of being organized and bringing your own with you uh we, we do make sure that there is always a um, a plant-based grab-and-go option available in the players' lounges because we do have the occasional player who does follow that way of eating as well. So can be done, just takes a little bit more planning. Gotcha, gotcha. So we've covered quite nicely, I think, carbohydrates, proteins, and the last kind of... We've covered hydration quite well, I think, as well. Um, but we'll come on to get some strategies and practical elements around that in a moment's time. Just before we move on to that kind of practical strategies, I just wanted to ask a question because I know this is another kind of, I don't want to call it food group because I don't think that's the right term. You could probably tell that through my degrees, I haven't covered nutrition. I tried to jump on a module when I did my master's, but they wouldn't let me do it because I was more focused on biomechanics and physiology, for example. So, um, But fats, are fats really a good thing? We always kind of get this general kind of thought processes, I guess, that fats are, are bad and we should avoid fats. Is that the case? And is that, well, I guess that might be prevalent within the sandwiches you're potentially suggesting in the snacks. Yeah. Uh, look, fat, fats has had a bad rap, haven't they? Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And um, they need a good PR agency to try and get them um, back. <laughs> and look, I think the difficulty in the whole fats area yeah. is um, the different types of fats and if we are to reduce them, what do we replace them with? So there's a couple of things that we need to explore. There. But the first one is this this concept that um, fats are, are bad and avoid them from the diet. Well, look, there's essential fatty acids. If you don't eat, you die. So let's just get to the, the, the point that, you know, there are certain things um, like the omegas, omega-3, 6, etc., that are absolutely essential for life. Uh, and to remove all fats from your diet 
it is a really, really bad idea. Yep. Um, the the low fat movement started to try and help with weight loss because you know fat per gram had the highest calories at nine kilocalories a gram compared with four in carbohydrates. But that was just quite a naive way of looking at it. Um, I think there's certainly, and this is where we'll now get controversial. Everything I've said so far, I think, is pretty non-controversial. Now we get to a point where people disagree, and that is uh, the types of fats that are actually good for you. Now, traditionally, we've talked about the um, difference between saturated and unsaturated fats. So you, you, you're unsaturated being vegetable oils, olive oil, things like that, and you're saturated being meat, butters, and, and, and things like that. And I think that's where there still is controversy about, um, you know, I think the general consensus is the unsaturated is probably the healthier one. You know, your your oil, your the olive oils, etc. But there is a school of thought that actually the saturated fats, particularly ones from natural sources like butters and, and, and meats, aren't probably as bad as what we maybe thought they used to be. There's a certain class of fats that I don't think anyone disagrees is a bad one, and these are these hydrogenated or trans fats. Yeah. Now, fortunately, a lot of people are removing these from foods anyway. So these are things that naturally should be a liquid at room temperature, but from convenience have been partially hydrogenated and become solid at room temperature. And what we, a decade ago, were told were healthy, so like margarines, switching from butter to margarines, you know, and actually we know that that's a really problematic thing. The other thing is if you remove saturated fat and replace it with refined sugar, I think the balance of the evidence is you're doing more harm than good though. So if you just remove butter from a diet and replace it with sugar, so you, you look for a low-fat food, on a, on a shelf and you read the label and it is low fat but you've got to put, replace it with something if you replace it with sugar that's probably a bad thing to do um i, I think when it comes to the fats you just need to look at it and if it looks healthy it probably is um so if you look at a plate that's got nuts and avocado and things like that on it i, I don't think we need to worry about the type of fats in that if you're looking at like deep fried rubbish in rubbish oils then i think we've got a little bit of a a bit of a concern there so i kind of sat on the fence and actually i think there's a lot of good stuff and, and things like salmon i know you don't eat um you don't eat uh, meats but you know the the omega-3s and all the the relationship between omega-3 and heart health you know there's a lot probably more goodness there than, than we need to worry about so yeah, had a bad press, but I think the press is changing. Okay. So let me try and kind of summarise what we've been talking about in some ways. So we've been talking about, from a golfing perspective, we want to get kind of protein fed throughout the day. So some protein before, some protein during, some protein after. Yep. We want to have regular kind of carbohydrate feeding. Try not to get that from very sugary stuff, but more kind of, um, what's the word you'd use there, Graham? Yeah, we're talking about lower glycemic index, so it's not causing a big spike in, it's more sustained release, yeah. Gotcha. So, and then we're trying to incorporate that throughout, and then the bit that we've spoke about too is also about that when you have things that are very high energy drinks like Coke or potentially a sports drink, they um, often have these kind of high sugars, but then also they... Um, 
sometimes uh, when we're trying to say here with the sports drinks um can't remember what I was saying with them now, but the fact with those is, oh yeah, that was it. The the actual certain elements in them, maybe around the sodium aspect, which you guys spoke about. So as as a general picture, then does that quite well summarise kind of what we spoke about so far? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And you know, maybe the last thing we touched on then is, you know, let's not get too obsessed with removing all fat from a diet. There's certainly good fats in things like salmon avocados, nuts, seeds, grains, um, olive oils, etc. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a decent summary. Perfect. And then, so thinking about from a, a strategy perspective, we've obviously co- covered some of these strategies so far, but kind of what would you kind of recommend golfers to do then? Pre-round, during the round, you've spoken before about 4, 10, 14. Just give us a little bit of understanding around those strategies then. <clears throat> yeah, so... Obviously, where possible, we want them to um, feed well, pre, you know, pre-round, and that'll be what we touched on before. So, um, having a good source of protein. So, you know, I'm a big fan of omelets. I'm a big fan of eggs in in many ways, scrambled eggs and smoked salmon, things like that. Um, and then a you know a decent um, low GI, you know, sustained release of carbohydrates. So you know, big fan of porridge and things like that. So a lot of golfers will be having a, like, um, maybe some overnight oats or a porridge or something like that for for breakfast and then um, with, with some eggs and that. And then, yeah, you picked up on, I try and give them a strategy for on the course. Um, so, you know, a simple one is, as I said, verb of 4, 10, 14. So eating something at 4 and 10 and 14. Um, with carbohydrates coming at all three and protein coming in the middle. In terms of hydration, just getting them into a habit. And I said before of when the putter goes in the bag, maybe the water bottle comes out uh, and, and just get into that habit so you don't forget to keep on top of your hydration because, you know, sometimes with all the things going on, you can forget. Um, and then when you finish for a round, you know, we talk about the three hours of recovery. So replace repair and rehydrate so replace we'd want a good source of carbohydrates in there whether it's rice or potatoes or something like that repair so we're going to need some protein and some vegetables so whether it's some fish i'm a big fan of salmon post round so salmon vegetables and rice might be a really nice recovery not burger and chips and then rehydrate because even with the best intentions on a particularly hot day the chances are that you, you will still be slightly dehydrated. So we need to rehydrate. Um, if you're in the fortunate position, you can weigh yourself. You know, we talk about for every kilo in weight lost, replace it with one and a half litres of fluid with electrolytes added and things like that. If you're not, um, just be, be aware of monitoring your urine for the next few hours. So, you know, it should be clear. It should be odourless. If it's dark and smelly, the chances are we're a bit dehydrated. And we need to do something about it. One question I do want to ask is at this moment is where does beer fit into this? So we know that often <laughs> when golfers finish a round or pre-round, they might have a beer. Is that a bad idea? I uh, look if you if you're asking me, are you asking me from a physical or a mental perspective? Um, I, look, there's I, two I camps, isn't there? Yeah, 
there's a guy called Ben Desborough from Australia, a really good scientist, and, and he's actually done some nice research on the very low cal- uh, alcohol beers and rehydration. Uh, and actually, you know, if it's a low enough alcohol content, the diuretic effect of beer isn't probably going to be more than the actual fluid you've consumed. So if you have like four or 500 mils of a 1% beer, then you, you're not going to have a diuretic effect. But look, if, if, you, if you're going perfect scenario, it probably wouldn't fit in. There's probably no work. If you're talking about relaxation and mental side of things and in the evening having a glass of wine or a beer with your dinner to a, as a relaxation, uh, like Zach said at the beginning, the moderation, but in moderation, it's unlikely to be doing a great deal of harm. If you're throwing a skinful in, well, then it's after sm- uh, quitting smoking, quitting putting shed loads of alcohol, and it's probably the next biggest thing you can do to improve your long-term health. So, yeah, I, I think we can argue that you can make room for the occasional glass of wine and beer, but, yeah, two or three glasses of wine a night is a habit I, I, I wouldn't be advocating. Gotcha. Sorry. Gotcha. So the thing that I'm thinking about, a lot of the listeners of this will likely be PGA pros. Um, So what I'm kind of thinking is, well, from this, what can clubs do on a club level to really kind of help promote better nutrition in the players? And one thing straight off the bat, I guess, is just thinking about what they're offering in the pro shop, I guess, potentially for food and drink. Um, And then potentially thinking about the menu that they offer at the club and is there an option or like a side menu that's good for health is are those kind of things you think realistic for clubs to think about yeah i think so um you know it wouldn't be that difficult to on on your menu have your traditional one because look who doesn't like a sunday morning pre-round bacon and egg bar and a burger and chips when we finish look and and golfers you know let's not take away this government's taking enough fun away from our life. Let's not take away every last drop of fun that we have. Sorry, we're going to get political. Well, uh, <laughs> I'll stop that. Out. Yeah, but I don't see any harm in the menus having a performance section. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a young aspiring golfer, so who gets to the course and wants some breakfast, there maybe is like an omelette or some porridge or something like that they can have in the morning. There could be. Isn't that hard to have some frozen berries, some yogurt, etc., in the kitchen, and you could order a a performance smoothie before you go out, and then when you come back in, it wouldn't be that hard to have a couple of decent options on on the menu, like a salmon rice type dish, so you could order off the performance one. And I think labeling it that way that you've got the standard menu and you've got the golf performance menu, um, and then even an ability. To even if it was a pre-order, but you know, it's not that hard for the chef to make some nice, like you know, we we have our chef make granola bars, banana breads, things like that to take on the course, and it wouldn't be that you know that hard to have that available in, in the um, in the clubhouse. But yeah, I think I think having both menus would be a nice thing. And uh, look, there was a few years ago there was a cafe in Ireland when I worked with Monster Rugby. Uh, I think it was called Delish. It was a really good cafe. And um, a lot of our players were going in there for breakfast or even post-training for, for food. 
So one of the players asked me, would I go in and speak to the owner about putting together a Munster rugby menu just for the Munster players? Uh, and we came up with all sorts of mad names. Like Jerry Flannery was playing there at the time and one of the meals was called Jerry's Gone Nuts because it was a, it was scrambled eggs made in peanut butter. Um, just a high calorie thing. And the, the, the purpose of this story was that they had that menu and then the regular guests started saying, could I order off a Munster menu? And before you know it, more were ordering off the healthy Munster menu than were ordering off what was already a healthy menu anyway to start with because it was a really nice deli type cafe. I miss going there, by the way. Uh, if anyone's in Ireland, in Limerick, they've got to go to Delish. It was, it was brilliant. Um, but yeah, I, I think that what you would find is that eventually people will morph towards the health. If what you did was change it from burger and chips overnight to salmon and rice, mm. you would get objections. But if for a time period you offered both, I imagine what you eventually see is more moving towards the better option. Oh, yeah, I'm also thinking, go on, Zach, there you go. I just kind of wanted to contribute to what Graham was describing because I, I think he's right. And I also think that it could be driven a bit faster if um, what he was alluding to happened across the board. And it's not just the inclusion of the items, but the framing of them too. Because, you know, yeah. ties back to what Graham was describing around understanding. If I see a healthy item um, with, without context, I may more easily pass it over for the burger and chips than if there was an entire section that was described as, I don't know, golf performance, because now my inclinations toward it are twofold as opposed to, you know, a single, which is based purely on the ingredients involved. Um, mm -hmm. And I also think that, you know, just general education on the courses um, in little spits and spurts. I saw a statistic the other day that said, 65% of the golf courses in the United States have either invested or beginning to invest in fitness and wellness amenities on all of their courses. Um, part of that budget could be put towards little flyers explaining, you know, little things like why is magnesium good for your golf game? If you're deficient in it, it will exacerbate conditions of anxiety and depression and so on and so forth, right? So injecting tidbits of nutritional knowledge on your menus, like in your clubhouses, like have a little poster board, just kind of with the nutritionists injecting information here or there with suggestions for why um, or how one could go about achieving them can go a long way to shifting just general thought processes. And then if the options are available, um, that can help drive them towards those options. Similar to Graham's story of the restaurant where everybody started wanting, you know, the monster menu. Yeah. So, and I think I could help a little bit with my contacts were something I might need to think about were, you know, if we could start publicizing and letting golf clubs put on the menu, this is what Rory eats pre-round. This is what mm. um, Tommy eats post-round. So then what you're now doing is educating everybody. But I think, the youngsters and the aspiring golfer were like, well, that's what Rory eats pre-round. I want to eat that. Yeah. And now the youngsters will eventually become the senior players in the club and know it's 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 passed through. So I think that would be a good way to, to try and help people just by getting more awareness of what the real elites do and why they do it, as Zach said, not just the what, but the why. Yeah. Well, that's all great stuff. I think that's... 
really good messages to kind of go away with as well um, on that kind of nutrition piece that we've been talking about um, and some things that I guess clubs can really practically, um, if they want to make change and they want to kind of help not only the health but also the performance of golfers, some nice changes they can implement with not much difficulty by the sounds of it, something that's relatively easy for them to do. And they're, they're really in the position of being the true stewards of the game, right? And it, it, like Graham was saying, it, back in the day, it wasn't the game that it is today. Um, but because the game has changed, uh, it's, it's, I really see it up to the golf courses to help instill that change in the wider audience that be because you know, they're the closest to the pulse of all the new players. Mm, yeah, indeed. So, Graham, before we move on to the uh, quickfire round, I just had one more question around athletes that you've worked with. Is there certain athletes that you're able to tell us who've had the biggest change in their diet? Or Bryson, for example, he's obviously somebody who's put, put a lot of weight on the last few years. I assume part of that is also due to his diet. So have you got any athletes that you think has really changed their mindset specifically around nutrition? Um, I don't know about changing... The mindset, really, I think it was a lot of, you know, I've worked with a lot of really good high-profile golfers who have really embraced it and and treat it as seriously as they do everything, everything else, you know. Um, you know, I, I'm very careful, like, name-dropping and, and things like that because, obviously, we've got a lot of, you know, uh, athlete-client confidentiality. But, you know, I, I don't think someone like Tommy Fleetwood would mind me saying that, he takes it very seriously. We have regular chats. You know, he's often asking what's the best thing to eat on the golf course. Um, uh, and what's really great about Tommy is he's got his own academy and he's asking me about how can I help educate the next generation of kids coming through? Because he wants, not only does he see the importance of it, he, he's really passionate about growing a game and helping the youngsters as well. So I think he, he's a good one who we can, and I've, you know, I've worked with Tommy now for almost a decade. Um, and certainly, you know, fuels rounds very well. Uh, but you're right, you know, some people, some of these I've worked with and, and, and some I haven't, but, you, you know, you look at something like Matt Fitzpatrick again, who takes his nutrition very seriously, looks incredibly athletic now. I think, you know, he's done some great work with some uh, strength and conditioning coaches um, over the years. His driving distance has come on. His concentration on the course seems to be as good as anybody's. And I know that he takes every aspect of his game seriously, including his nutrition. Uh, and, and I don't work with Matt at the moment. Uh, I have done in the past. He, he's got other nutrition sport at the moment, other world-class nutrition sport, I should add. Um, so, uh, so that's not just me blowing me on trumpet, but that's giving you know, a rap to someone who's gone out and gets great advice and... Uh, and takes it really seriously. And, and I think we've seen a, a physical developing in somebody like Matt as well. And I think it's resulted in, you know, in being one of the world's greatest players. So, yeah, I, I could use multiple examples. Um, and, and you said Bryson, you know, who, you know, you know, you've got to love him, haven't you? You've got to love how he um, is willing to innovate and experiment, whether that's in technology or within his own body and his own frame. And clearly, it's a ball a million miles. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's lots and lots of, of, of great examples. And we're even seeing people you wouldn't think take nutrition seriously now embracing it and trying really hard to make major changes. Uh, and I'll just 
without name, naming names, I'll just leave it at that. But some people you would never think and know mm. really on board. Gotcha. Fellas, any questions from YouTube before we move on to the quickfire round? I'm all good. I think you've covered so much. And again, I've learned yeah. a lot. I've made about two pages of notes. Um, yeah, gonna gonna see see if I can keep it in my brain for the next few days now. <laughs> I'm just happy to hear that the tides are changing in nutrition and golf. Because you know, as a company in the nutrition space for golf, it's it's sometimes like pulling teeth talking to many people about nutrition or getting them to care. So, just one of those things. Well, great stuff. So let's move on to the quick fire round then before we um, finish up with the episode today. So Graham, this is uh, directed at you. Um, so this is this section is effectively where you and I get to voice our annoyances in golf. So effectively we play a game of what annoys you the most on the golf course. Um, and I'm gonna provide you with two options and you just have to choose which one you think is the most annoying, okay? okay. So first things first, um, which is most annoying? Waiting on the tee or no sand in a bunker? Waiting on the tee. Waiting on the tee. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not a fan yeah. of slow golf then. Not a fan of slow golf and if you're going in a bunker it's your own fault. <laughs> okay, like it. Cool, alright, so sticking with that then, so you chose waiting on the tee. So is it that or is it people using buggies in wet conditions in the winter? Ooh. Personally, I'd still say waiting on the tee, but if I put a more good for the game, wet buggy, uh, then you don't need it using buggies. I'm, I'm all for equality and inclusion, and if you need a buggy to get around a golf course, then great. But then you don't need it because using a buggy, I would say, yeah, then you don't need it. But let's just say if, if you do need it, I think everyone should be able to enjoy this great game. Of course, we're flipping over to buggies, yeah? Yeah. Cool. Right then. On the third point then, is it the buggies using wet conditions in the winter or seeing pitch marks on the green from the previous group who's just in front of you? I'd say pitch marks because it's just so lazy, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, totally so agree. lazy. And you know what? Most of us don't aren't good enough to make them all the time, so celebrate it. I'd add it as a badge of honour, but I've yeah. a, a great approach shot. Yeah, and the annoying thing is, is that is they're also probably the kind of people who, if they got to agree and saw the pitch marks, they'd be really annoyed that they were there in their line. So, yeah. they totally agree. Cool, and then finally, this is one of my bugbears within golf, which I get it because people are walking around the course. So let's say you're playing at Woburn the other week, um, and they have nice country paths around the outside of the forests. But then you get people who are just walking, having a nice walk, but just nattering away when you're trying to hit your golf shot. So is it, are you sticking with the fact of the um, the pitch marks on the green, or is it the people who are walking around the course who don't play golf, but are chatting away while you're hitting the golf ball? I'm, I'm on still for pitch marks, and I can, I can justify that on multiple levels, but one, golfers should know better, where people walking around the course maybe shouldn't, and two, as a former rugby player, you know, I've been used to taking goal kicks with people throwing things at me and, uh, you know, really heckling and abusing you as you're lining up your goal kicks. So a little bit of chatter doesn't bother me at all. Great stuff. So on that one then, obviously pitch marks win out. Have you got an additional kind of annoyance on the course that you uh, want to raise before we finish? 
I, I, no, I think well, I maybe surprise myself. It, for me, it, it's that it's the slow play unnecessary when people um, get ready golf and, and even that walking around. I mean, it's changing now, isn't it? But this like. Is it your? Is it me or you? And walking around the green, I think it might just be you, or I don't know. It might just be me, and just hit the ball in the hole and get on with it. Yeah. Um, you know, golf should be three to four hours for me, and I, I moved from a golf club because we could, Saturday comps was five to six hours, and it was just um, painful. You know, and I, yeah, keep the pace of play. I often just go in and teed off around about three o'clock. Um, with my missus and we just zoom round we get round in like 2 hours 45 3 hours and we're done yeah. so. well, a good friend of mine who I play golf with he works night shifts so I often meet him at the course at like 5am half 5 when he fin- finishes the night shift and we'll have a game I'll be back home for breakfast with the kids and uh, we've had a 2 and a half hour round and for me that's perfect brilliant Great stuff. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, it's been a really great discussion, Graham. Um, I think we've got a lot of information out of that. We've really kind of rung you out in some of that information. Um, and I think we've got some really useful things for coaches to think about within their club uh, and also thinking golfers thinking about what they should eat on the course. So thanks for being on. Really appreciate it. No problem at all. No problem. And as I said earlier, you've got a number of different papers, chapters, all these kind of things to discuss. So it'd be great to have you back on in the future to discuss one of those research papers. Yep, no problem at all. And we're just um, in the process of getting a PhD funded by um, the DP World Tour and a few others to, to do more research in golf. So when I said at the beginning, there's not a lot of research. Uh, watch this space. Um, we will be contributing to that golf nutrition research in the very near future. Amazing. Um, so where can people find you, our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, I'm not that hard to stalk, really. Um, if, if you On Twitter, it's close underscore nutrition. Instagram, it's just close nutrition. Uh, and if you just Google Graham Close Nutrition, all my university details and uh, all that comes up. So, yeah, I'm quite easy to find. Great stuff. So, Zach, thanks for joining us as well. Really great to get some of your questions and your thoughts and some of the information around nutrition from you as well. So, really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on today. No, absolutely. And thanks for having me. I really, uh, it was a bit of imposter syndrome sitting with Graham on this. <laughs> no, it, was, it was great to speak, Zach. Thank you. Great stuff. And, Zach, where can people find you as well? Uh, well, you can find us at driveforce.golf. Um, our Instagram is driveforcegolf, uh, all of our social media. And, yeah, I mean, I encourage any uh, player or clinician such as Graham just to look at our product and evaluate it from an ingredient standpoint. I think that, you know, as far as sports nutrition goes, it's the product that golfers have needed for uh, a while. Good stuff. So, Zach, uh, thank you very much. And Lewis, again, thanks for joining me again, mate. It's been great to have you on. Absolute pleasure. Um, always always nice to see your face, Dan. And uh, <laughs> obviously spending time with Graham and Zach today, a lot of, not, lot of knowledge bombs were dropped. And uh, like I said, I've made loads of notes and learning lots. So it's a real pleasure to um, spend time around you guys. So thank you for that. Perfect. And where can our listeners find you again? Uh, on Instagram, it's Lewis Downey Golf Pro. Nice and easy. 
Perfect. So that's it for episode three of the Golf Science Podcast. In the next episode, we will be um, speaking to Dr. Tony Luxak from the University of Mississippi. He is an assistant research professor at the National Strategic Planning and Analysis Research Center. And we'll be talking to him about his paper on the challenges of using 2D versus 3D for golf coaches. So that's all from the Golf Science Podcast. If you want to learn more about the science of golf, visit my website at sciencecaddy.com where you'll find golf science articles, videos, and online webinars. So, in, so until next time, I've been your host, Daniel Thompson, your caddy for all things golf science.